As a full-time working adult juggling various responsibilities and obligations, life can get very hectic sometimes. There'll be days where you're just going with the motions and waiting till you can leave work, but then there'll be other days where a veritable tsunami comes crashing down. All at once your boss rushes you for that report, your friends need your help, and your spouse calls in with some urgent matter that you need to attend to immediately. This is nothing revolutionary, of course, and for the more cynical or stoic among us, they would probably just say that this is what being an adult looks like, so stop whining and suck it up. Except that given enough time, sucking it up tends to lead to many of our modern ailments. Depression, weight gain, addiction, alcoholism, and all sorts of other nasty stuff. Therefore, in order to keep your head above water, I found that there are certain things that work quite well. Things such as hanging out with your friends, playing video games, going for a run, or even meditation if you're into that kind of thing. Now, notice your breathing, and especially the still point between breaths. Still point between the breaths. However, I've also noticed that in spite of whatever method you choose to escape or deal with your adulting problems, life always seems to find a way. Hello, what? Oh, you don't want me, huh? You do your session already or not? Boss wants to review today, leh. Also, what time are you coming in, huh? Can you come in before 9? I want to go through all his queries. Oh yeah, huh? Yesterday, the document you sent me also got typo. Make sure you fix it, huh? If not, boss will scold you again. Oi, you listening or not? Hello, 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 and you're tuning in to an episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. Okay, so maybe I haven't got this thing quite figured out yet, or maybe I just need to quit my job, but what am I going to do for a living and how am I going to save and put food on the table? If you're someone like me who's been working for a few years after graduating, these worries might sound rather familiar. You come out of university wide-eyed and ambitious and idealistic about all the things you want to achieve and all the people you would like to emulate, but the working world probably isn't as rosy and exciting as you pictured it, right? But then again, quitting involves a lot of risk. What if your new job is just as bad as your old one? What if you can't even find a new job? And for the really brave ones, what if your startup or passion project doesn't work out and you lose all that time or money that you could have spent elsewhere? It's this tension between the need for survival and the need for some sense of meaning or purpose in what we do that is constantly playing in the back of our minds, like an itch that you can't reach or an urge to get up and move, but you feel like you're always sitting still. 
It is a deep yearning born out of our economic circumstances and one which slowly and possibly literally sucks all the joy and life out of you. It is no wonder then that in the World Happiness Report released in 2018, the hyper-competitive and pragmatic urban jungle that is Singapore ranked just a measly 34th. Singapore then is great at producing fantastic infrastructure, a high GDP per capita, and the best airport in the world, but as it seems, all of this doesn't really translate to happiness and well-being amongst the population. Which is why, while browsing through Facebook one day, this short video really caught my attention. My happiness is eating good food with people I love. For me, it's my kids, and, um, and they certainly make me really happy. It is a promotional video for something called the Happiness Film Festival, organized by a social enterprise called the Happiness Initiative, and which lasted for five days beginning on the 20th of March 2019, which by design or some happy coincidence, just so happens to be the International Day of Happiness. Happiness is what is inside of you and not outside. Happiness is when you make others happy. If you make others happy, something happens inside your body. Now, while the themes of happiness and well-being are important, it is undeniable that there has been a recent surge in businesses and companies leveraging on these issues, and especially on social media with its abundance of overtly optimistic messages and uplifting commercial jingles, it can be difficult to separate which among the many voices are genuine and which of these serve nothing more than just a marketing ploy. Normally, I would hedge my bets and give this kind of thing a pass, but since my wife was in town and we were looking for something different to do, I thought, why not? And so we got tickets, went down on a rainy Thursday evening, and spent a couple of hours watching a Japanese film at the projector. <laughs> And we actually loved it. The film is called Survival Family, and it's about this family that's trying to survive in a world where all power and electrical devices suddenly don't work. And at the end, there was even a short discussion about the implications of technology and social media on our lives. But the really surprising thing was that this entire festival, five days of sold-out shows, a list of maybe 20 to 30 or even more organizational partners, and hundreds or even thousands of guests, including special guests for the panel discussions, was the brainchild of just two people, the co-founders of Happiness Initiative, Simon Liao and Sherman Ho who announced right before the film started that their enterprise had just crossed the two-year mark. If planning and sourcing and producing a five-day film festival is not a genuine sign of intent, then I don't know what is. And so after the event, I got curious, looked them up, shot them an email, and two weeks later, we sat down for a proper interview. So, I mean, uh, just for formality's sake, could you two introduce, briefly introduce yourselves? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm Simon. Uh, I'm Sherman. Sherman. Yeah. yeah. All right. 
And uh, yeah, so we are from you know? and we are from Happiness Initiative. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe they can teach us a thing or two about happiness and meaning in this modern age. Uh, so I was in education uh, for close to about ten years. I left education. I went to US to do my masters. I did a masters in applied positive psychology mm. uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. Mm. And after I come back, right, I begin to uh, to introduce and to promote this uh, happiness and well-being here mm. in Singapore. Yeah. Uh, for me, uh, my background was actually in accounting and finance. So. Uh, Uh, after school, I went into commodities trading for a while. I was handling the Africa region, and then after that, uh, before I left and, and started this whole thing with Simon, no? yeah. And so we have Simon, the former school teacher turned consultant, and Sherman, the accounting and finance guy who used to be a commodities trader. Why I left education was I think at one point in life I was, uh, I I think I was doing well. I was being promoted. I was. I I think that uh, I was making a difference, but at that then education landscape uh, was very different from now. The path to success was uh, much uh, narrower, and uh, that was a bit of that uh, that uh, misalignment with what I truly believe. Right? Because I truly believe in human potential; that everyone has potential. And I think uh, everyone would succeed if they had different pathways, but uh, then the landscape was quite different. Yeah. While Simon was explaining why he decided to leave education, he touches on this idea of the narrow path to success, which we will expand upon later. For now, let's hear Sherman's side of the story. When I was working in the commodities trading company, right, it's one of the big MNCs, and and when I was handling the Africa region. You see a lot of things that that you don't see in Singapore. Like there was once I was traveling, we were going to this border town to see the border trades, right? And then along the highway, I started to see a lot of kids, teenagers on the road, like they were filling up potholes. So then the my colleague asked my colleague what 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 were they doing? And then he was like, oh, actually a lot of these kids are just doing that, hoping that uh, cars will stop and give them money lah to buy food and to eat. The thing that really got to me was that you realize that these people, uh, their lives has no value, in the sense that they die, they die, and nobody cares. They're not even a statistic that's being measured, right? But in Singapore, on the other hand, you know, if a kid gets hit hit by a car, it's a whole different thing. You know, like you have front page news, you have people that will come come out and say that hey, you know, we should punish the driver. You know, we should raise funds for the family. You know, this kid had a bright future. You know, there's so many things that happen. There's so much. Value that we place upon one life, right? Where Simon's case for leaving was a misalignment of beliefs, Sherman's was more about gaining a new perspective from his time working abroad, something which led him to reevaluate his position and priorities in life. So that led me to think that you know, for all that we have to lose, that that we think that we have to lose in Singapore, right? We actually in a position that. In a way, if you look the way you look at it, we don't have much to lose because even though we fail in everything, we screw up everything in life, right? You know, the, the government, in a way, uh, and and the society as a whole will make sure that there, there, you know, you won't die, starve to death, you won't. That our basic needs are always met. There are yeah. safety nets. Yeah, safety nets, yeah. right? And and it's not perfect, but I think it's much better than many many countries 
in the world, right? Uh, yeah, so eventually it led me to to also reconsider uh, working, you know, what, what what I was doing there. La. And because at that time also, I, I enjoyed the experience traveling to countries like this, but I, I wasn't enjoying, I didn't like the job. So I didn't like because it's very sales oriented and you're selling uh, things that you don't really believe in. So I, I was... I wasn't too happy with the job. I was very, it was very, a very draining experience. On the other hand, when I do, when I go and do voluntary work, you know, on a Saturday morning, I have to go somewhere for a meeting. I'm not being paid a single cent. I'm just doing all this thing for free. But I just get very excited, you know, I want to do this, I want to do that. And then eventually that also led me to reconsider what was more important to me. And eventually that's why I left and, and went on this journey. Mm. In any case, It's a familiar entrepreneur story. You are unsatisfied with your job or you don't really buy into what your company is doing, which leads you to leave and go pursue something else that you are more passionate about. However, as I've mentioned earlier, the decision to quit is not something that can be made on a whim. And certainly to Simon and Sherman, these choices did not come easy. Um, I remember when I was working, I didn't seem to be happy or contented. At every moment when I have a pay increment, right, uh, my lifestyle would change. Uh, so to sustain the new lifestyle, I would think that, okay, I need to work harder. But uh, working harder wasn't the answer because I wasn't enjoying what I was doing. So I felt very stuck. And when I felt stuck, it justified me spending more outside life. You know, like I, it justified me going to a better restaurant. It justified uh, me going to go for more expensive holiday trips. And because of that, I need to sustain a lifestyle. And I got into that vicious cycle. And it was just so, so uh, uh, insidious that I, I didn't even know that there were choices that could be different. Nor did they take place overnight. Yeah, actually, it's interesting because, like, I think. The problem also is that a lot of people think that you need to make drastic changes in your life. Like for example, and, and the media somehow plays a part because they always talk about stories. You know, for example, like stories with us, they would say, that, oh, you know, I quit my job as a trader and went to start this journey. You know, Simon quit his job as the, the, the VP of this school and then he went on this journey. It's like overnight success. But, but actually, it's, it's, it's not like that, right? For us, it's a lot. You know, when I was working, I was really volunteering and actually the company was started even at the time I was working. So there were many little steps that I was making before I made that decision to just leave. So it wasn't that just like one day I decided, hey, you know, I'm gonna, you know, screw this and, and just quit and go and live a baller life. It's, it's not like that. But slowly and surely, they would cultivate their passion projects alongside their normal jobs until finally it made sense to completely jump on board. Yeah, it was yeah. a very gradual thing. I yeah. think I, when I came back from States, uh, I was trying to make ends meet because I used all my savings for my master's program. So I remember coming back with just $100 left in my bank account. And I was, because being a teacher, right, what I started off with was uh, I could still teach. Uh, but I was still more passionate about um, uh, like happiness and well-being in the promotion of this. And I continued to do some of this work, uh, like consultancy work with some international school to help them to build some of this uh, well-being curriculum. And slowly, you know, people begin to know about what I'm offering, right? 
it came a point where I think Sherman uh, saw what I was doing mm. and I was asking him for help because there were I, I was running on a one-man team right there and there's so many things I couldn't do you see and uh, he, so one day uh, Sherman just told me that uh, okay uh, let me help you with this and uh, so he came on board and two years ago uh, on the 20th of March Incidentally, that was also the UN International Day of Happiness, right? And we, we found a happiness initiative not knowing that it was the International Day of Happiness. So that was such a serendipity, yeah, that uh, it happened. And so on the 20th of March 2017, on the UN International Day of Happiness, the local social enterprise Happiness Initiative was born. But what does the company do exactly? What kind of message is it trying to send? And how did it end up staging a film festival two years later? We get into this and more after a short break. Promoting happiness and well-being is, of course, a worthy cause. But unfortunately, in the real world where you have accounting and numbers and profit margins, Worthy causes don't always translate nicely into a viable business model. This is one of the challenges that Happiness Initiative faced when they first started, i.e. what service or product the company would actually be producing, and it is an issue that they are still trying to refine even to this day. I think we knew in a very broad sense what we wanted to do, but in terms of specifics about how it's going to be done, I think us a long time to really get into the thing and even now I think there are many things that we are still debating about how to go about doing this because I agree with what you said that uh, 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 people have a perception that happiness is this very fake fluffy and very abstract kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah it took us a long time to really try to tie down how we were going to do this and at the start also when we were discussing it was very you know we started with very basic stuff like talking about mindset resilience and now we move on into a lot more broader ideas. Huh? Like we ran this film festival, we talk about like meaning and purpose, about ego, about pain, and all these topics. Yeah. And to make things more difficult is the resistance that they faced from potential clients, with one notable group in particular. Okay, so let's say if we talk about schools, right? Generally, when we meet them to, to talk about the programs we run, there are two reactions. One, one, one group is the, the group of schools that are really subscribed to positive education. So they are very into this realm about growth mindset, fixed mindset. They are very into the realm of uh, helping students believe that they can be better rather than just focusing on academics, right? So when we approach schools like that, it's very easy to market our programs because they really subscribe to the whole belief. The teachers, the whole uh, hierarchy in the school already believes in the whole thing and it's very easy to work with them for programs. But then there's this other group of schools, which I think also a big number of schools, you know, that are very still very academic. So they are always very like, oh, how will this improve the grades of the students? How will this help the students in their get do better in their exams? It's always very exam focused, and and the challenges we face with these schools is that it's very difficult to convince them because their their mind frame is really, I I, mean, I want to say not right, but they are not ready to to try different. Ideas, yeah. Remember how I briefly pointed out the idea of the narrow path to success? 
Well, this is the view held by many if not most Singaporeans that success is defined primarily by excellence in academics. The reason for this is that your grades determine entry into prestigious and exclusive educational institutions at the secondary, tertiary, and university levels. The belief is that entry into these quote better schools raises your prospects down the road and increases the likelihood that you will end up with the most sought after jobs after graduation. In other words, there is a very, very substantial carrot at the end of the education stick. Now, of course, in reality, success can come in many different forms, and good grades alone don't guarantee your outcome later on in life. Nonetheless, this view is still very pervasive within Singapore and has been perpetuated and repeated by our teachers, our political leaders, our parents, our relatives, and even our classmates who we compete with in this educational rat race. The result of this? is that from a very young age, students are subject to an incredible degree of academic grade-centric pressure. Either do well or be a failure your whole life. The mandate of schools is maybe, uh, I, I stand to be corrected, uh, for the kids to do well. Right, I, I think that's an important part of it. And of course, uh, the other part of it would be to build the character of the children. It depends on uh, where the school is uh, placing emphasis on. And I think maybe some schools, uh, perhaps at that point of uh, in time, their emphasis would be on one part of, you know, uh, it could be academics. Th that, that could be the reason why uh, they are saying, that, okay, uh, uh, you know, some of your these ideas can wait because what we are currently being measured now, very importantly, is that there's going to be a test coming up, and that is an important result that we can see. Uh, the child having uh, resilience, right? Uh, because you are preparing them for much later in life, it's not something that I could see immediately, which is why they may not subscribe to it as readily. Fortunately, in more recent times, the Ministry of Education has started to shift away from this grade-heavy, exam-intensive approach. But I have to admit that it was still really uncomfortable listening to Simon and Sherman talk about their experiences with the more academically-focused schools, especially as it implied that grades mattered more than the well-being of the students. And the funny thing is, Happiness Initiative didn't face that much resistance from corporations at all. Outside of schools, we, we have been pretty lucky, I would say. When we tell people about our what we wanted to do, right, uh, happy, to promote happiness and uh, well-being, uh, we do get very positive responses. Uh, it, it could come in uh, various ways. Some would support the project uh, uh, financially. Uh, some because they are unable to support us financially, right? But they would just lend whatever support that they they have. So it has still been a very positive journey, right? Yeah, and I think yeah, I yeah. think outside of schools, uh, when we work with organizations, the response has been very positive. Like many people would tell us that. It is really what we do is important and they believe in it, right? And and it's not just regular people, you know, even like big organizations, a lot of them are also looking into this realm of well-being 
and for their employees, for their staff, and and uh, it's an important and it's a it's a very key thing that that people are concerned about now. Cynically, I like to think that companies are interested in well-being programs just so that they can justify overworking and underpaying their employees. But Simon and Sherman offer us a different perspective. In, in companies, I think human interactions, uh, uh, you would know quite immediately mm. that your colleagues are not you know, in the right, they are, they are not feeling well. There's this immediate need that you know, something should be done. If people are not happy with your company culture, they could <coughs> easily leave. Not in the school system, right? Mm-hmm. If, you are, if a, a child is not happy with a school culture, they cannot say, I want to leave because, <laughs> right? Yeah, you cannot just say, I want to resign from your school. Yeah. Certain companies who really want to invest in human, the human potential, they believe in human potential, they are very, very mindful of building the right culture. And perhaps that was why they, they would uh, come in to, to support that. And we are also working with adults. And because adults make the decision themselves, they know that happiness and well-being is important to them. They make the decision that, okay, this, these are programs that I want to be part of. Mm. Whereas when you work with schools, uh, you, the, the children themselves or the students themselves don't come in to tell you to make the decision. It's always made either by the teachers or by the parents. Okay, so with the backing of schools and corporations, Happiness Initiative was finally in business running programs and workshops on the themes of happiness and well-being. And after the two or so years that they've been around, I'm happy to report that they do have a much-defined identity and message. If you go to the website happinessinitiative.sg, the first thing you'll see in big black block letters against a bright yellow background is the phrase, happiness can be a choice. On the surface level, this message serves as practical advice, pointing out that there are things that you can choose to do in order to be happy. These include being grateful. I think one most immediate choice that people can make it is to be able to count your blessings. Uh, there is tons and tons of research, right, that when at this moment, if you're thinking about uh, and you're being grateful for what you have, right, it immediately have a effect on your on, on, on your so-called subjective well-being, your happiness level. Being kind. So uh, there's also tons of research uh, that points towards uh, when you do a random act of kindness, right? You immediately have a boost. And for mild depression, uh, this was shared to us by Dr. Wan. So he was saying that if you have mild depression, almost immediately if you go out to do an act of kindness, right? Uh, you would feel happier. Mm. Uh, and and I, I think uh, that is also another choice that people can make to be kind. And being contented. It seems very paradoxical because, wow, uh, contentment, right? You're so you're contented. Why would you strive for progress anymore? I think there is a misconception uh, with the word contentment. Contentment doesn't mean complacent. What we do not want our nation to be is to be complacent. We want ourselves to continuously be creative, be innovative, to strive for progress, but at the same time be able to be contented with what we have. So I, I think there is that intersection, and when people can find the intersection, that will be, it will be a happier nation. But at a deeper level, I like to think that it also serves as a message of self-empowerment. 
one where you take back control from the external to the internal, and one where you stare all your obligations and responsibilities in the face, stoically, unflinchingly, and just keep moving forward. Let's say we are feeling down about something, maybe we hate our jobs or what, and all these things. A lot of times we feel that they are due to factors that are beyond our control. Like if we have a job, there's no choice what I need to work, you know, I need to do this for this company needs me to do this, you know. So a lot of times we feel that uh, how happy we are is beyond our control. But but there's so what like what Simon said, there are actually many little things that you can do not to change the external circumstances. So meaning to say you still have to work there, you still have to do the job, you may not know the job. But there are choices that you can make to make it a more uh, meaningful experience for yourself, for the individual. So we, that's, what, that's why we, 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 we try to push for this idea that happiness is a choice. And then through this festival where we have many, many different panelists from many different industries and different backgrounds to share their, their insights, a lot of them, there was this very common theme that, that, that connects all these people is that the idea of ha- happiness comes from within. That means uh, your happiness is not uh, controlled by external circumstances, but how you how you yourself make the choices that you make, and it comes from from yourself and not anyone else. Yeah, and it's a it's not necessarily also a, a immediate thing. Not like oh, suddenly I'm grateful and I'm a happy person. But I think it's a gradual change in the way your your mind works. And to some, this message might be a little counterintuitive. I mean. Surely happiness can be all subjective, right? I'm pretty sure the guy living in a mansion would be way happier than some guy living on the streets. It's always a heavily debated question among the economists and psychologists that can money buy happiness? Uh, I think up to a certain degree, we, because we need money for certain basic needs. Yeah. You, you, if you read one of these, uh, it's, it's a very uh, much uh, cited uh, study uh, by Kahneman. That's the renowned Nobel Prize-winning Israeli-American psychologist and economist Daniel Kahneman. So he was analyzing, right, uh, income level and happiness, and he realized that beyond seventy-five thousand U.S. dollar annual income, uh, you will not beyond that, you will not have an increase in uh, like your positive emotions. Or you will not decrease any more negative emotion beyond seventy-five thousand US dollars. Now, the study that Simon is talking about is called "High Income Improves Evaluation of Life, but Not Emotional Well-Being." <laughs> not very creative, I know, but what the researchers Kahneman and another economist Angus Deaton did was to first distinguish two types of happiness or subjective well-being. The first is called emotional well-being and is described in the paper as, quote, the emotional quality of an individual's everyday experience. So you can think of this as like your erratic day-to-day mood. What they found was that an annual income above 75000 doesn't appear to have any additional impact on happiness. Later papers have described this amount as the, quote, satiation point. And I think the reason is simple. So he was just saying that any more ma- amount of money is not going to increase, uh, it is not going to make you any more happier in, in, in that sense because all your basic needs are really bad. It takes more. Uh, it, it could be your interaction with your, your loved ones. 
the time spent with your loved ones because every dollar every amount of time you spend earning that one dollar is also taking away time quality time away from all these social interactions which could give you greater meaning notably the other measure of happiness that the study tested life evaluation or how satisfied someone is with how their life is going presented a different picture in the results it showed that there was no clear satiation point in fact the higher the income the higher someone's life evaluation score which i guess makes some sense i mean if you're making 500,000 a year you'd probably feel like you're doing better than someone making 75,000 a year right but the thing we've got to remember is that it's relative wealth here that matters and when it comes to comparing wealth when basic needs are met when we look at our neighbors and if our neighbors are driving a much better car than us and we are unhappy with that that is something that we can control because we have a basic need of transportation really but now because i compare my car with my neighbor's car and i get upset with that that is something within our control I think it's very easy to draw draw it as a conflict between money and happiness. I don't think that's what we're trying to say. We're not. I I think it's okay to want to earn a lot of money. It's okay to want to own a BMW. It's okay to want to have a big house, to have a big salary, and to be rich. Yeah. But what we are saying is that uh, happiness is not correlated with that. Up to a certain point, money can get you a certain level of uh, comfort and happiness. But beyond that, you know, that's not related to happiness. Yeah. As long as your basic needs are met, uh, whether you are rich or not you can also be happier. You can make choices to be happier. Yeah. Okay, so we've got a clearer idea of the message that Happiness Initiative is trying to send. But how exactly do they deliver this? Well, through something they call the TGIF experiences. Okay, uh, so T stands for travel. Uh, it is something mm. that we are still uh, uh, developing. developing. Uh, uh, G stands for games, so we want to introduce uh, uh, some psychological ideas to games. Uh, the the first uh, game that we develop is mm. the mindset board game. Yep, these guys actually developed their very own board game called the mindset board game, based on the principles of growth and fixed mindsets, which is a theory by Carol Dweck a psychology professor from Stanford University. I is introspection. So we have uh, currently screw up moments. It's for people to talk about the failures. Uh, the two key messages are it's okay to fail, it's okay to try again. So I haven't been to one of these sessions, but from what I can tell and from what Simon and Sherman have told me, they are these cozy little gatherings where speakers go up on stage, talk about their failures, and answer questions afterwards. It's meant to be raw, therapeutic, cathartic even. And the surprising thing to Simon and Sherman was that even though some of the stories were really crazy and tragic, there were people in the audience who could actually relate to and understand what the speaker went through, which is kind of mind-blowing to me. I mean, like in the previous session, there was a lady who suffered through four miscarriages, and in an earlier one, there was one who went through a psychotic episode, and even a lady who got fired just after she gave birth while she was still in the hospital? Crazy stuff. But anyway, the final letter of the TGIF experiences, as you probably might have guessed, 
stands for? The last one, F, stands for film. So through films, you want to so allow people to explore different themes of happiness and well-being. <coughs> so we just organized the World's First Happiness Film Festival. Yeah. And in the most interestingly roundabout way, we're finally going to address the thing that led to this interview in the first place. So how did two guys end up organizing a film festival? Well, it helped that Sherman had plenty of experience from his background volunteering at the Singapore Film Society. But actually, he wasn't the one who brought up the idea in the first place. I think this film festival idea came from Simon. So he, basically because I, I work in the film society, so I run a lot of film festivals right. every year, right? So every time, I think when he saw that, he was quite inspired. Like, okay, we should use film as a medium to talk about happiness. In fact, Sherman was actually opposed to the idea. Ironically, I was the one that was very against it. Like, <laughs> I didn't want to do the film festival. Simply because being in the industry, you realize that uh, it is very saturated. So because our society compiles a list of all the festivals that happen in Singapore, so there are on average about 50 over festivals that happen on a yearly so, basis in Singapore. Yeah. Yeah, and you have all kinds of funny festivals. There's, there's one about corporate ethics that I organized with ACCA. Okay. There's one about, last year there was one that was organized about fly fishing. <laughs> yeah, so you, then there's of course the country, like the Hong Kong, the Japanese, the Chinese film festivals. So when he broached that idea, I was against it simply because I thought that, you know, why go, you know, wait in a pool that is really so crowded with another, yet another film festival? But eventually... So, so it took me two years to convince him. <laughs> yeah, then he finally agreed to do it. Yeah. So he was very persistent and then finally I said, okay, like, yeah, yeah, I just I helped to curate the films after that. And so the dream was on, as was months of hard work and preparation ahead. <laughs> Being an insider, he's saying, you know, the work to organize this film festival, yeah. there's so much work to do. do you, yeah, it's just like one screening, but the amount of effort to put yeah. through put on a one screening fast exit that two hours you know and not to mention the financial burden as well and, and also it's the, the issue of cost because it's impossible okay I wouldn't say impossible but it's extremely extremely difficult to break even for film festivals yeah because the cost of running a film festival if you don't have sponsorships or any funding in general the average price you would need to charge an audience member even if you you estimate that you get a complete full house, you need to charge like close to like over $20, $30 per ticket. And these are prices that audiences are not willing to pay, right? And so film festivals, in a way, that are always loss-making and it always depends a lot on funding and sponsorships. Fortunately, they were able to get funding from the National Youth Council and our Singapore Fund and proceeded with the planning of the event. This involved securing the venues, curating the movies, getting the film distribution rights, finding partners, and marketing the event. Oh, and did I mention that they did this all in about six to eight months? This took two years in the venue. No, it, it wasn't two years actually. Like, yeah. Yeah. Two, two, two years, years to convince him. One year was spent <laughs> convincing me. <laughs> One and a half years. Yeah, was spent convincing me. The last. I so think, we left only for six months to yeah, to, six to, to eight months we spent. Yeah. So I think we submitted the application for grant. I think last June or July, 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 August. 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 Last August. August. 
August. Yeah. But it only came back to us in November. November, in, December. November, December. Yeah. In fact, yeah. the second grant, the one from our Singapore Fund, only came back, I think, it in February. We only got locked in in February. Yeah. <laughs> so we started the whole thing basically only in August. Even as I'm listening to them retell this portion again and again, I am still in disbelief as to how they were able to pull this all off. Regardless of how the film festival actually turned out, I think their effort alone deserves a huge amount of credit. And to just give you an example of how much they actually put into this film festival, listen to how Simon describes their marketing process. The publicity was uh, really done in Jan, Jan, January. Jan, Feb, Feb in fact. Correct. Yeah, February. So in that one month, I basically contacted like maybe a, a thousand different people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, just, he keeps sending Facebook messages until Facebook <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I remember. Well, you know, there are days that Facebook will just tell me that you can't send any more messages anymore. I, I said I got it already. Yeah. So I, I tried to tell them, can you please review it? But no one come back to me to review. By then. After that, they would have unlocked it. Then I sent out again. Then <laughs> got banned again. <laughs> got banned again. So yeah. And when the film festival actually took place, it was a success. Eight months of blood, sweat, and tears that resulted in five days of fully sold-out screenings and hundreds, if not thousands, of attendees. From the point of view of two guys with a dream and a vision two years ago, this was a monumental achievement. And as Sherman humbly points out, it couldn't have been possible without the help of their many partners. So, while we put in a lot of effort, there are many other people that really supported us in a very significant way. Yeah. So a lot of our part. The, I think one advantage we have in this arena is that this idea about happiness and discussion is, is something that matters to a lot of people. And that's why like, a lot of people, we could easily get a lot of people on board to really do more than what they would have usually done in the context. You know, people like our, our social media partners, our media partners, these are, they could have just done it in a way, okay, this is what we are supposed to do and this is what we do. But a lot of them actually put in a lot more in terms of that because they also think that this is a subject matter that is important to them and it matters to them, not just because we are doing it, not just because they want to support the happiness initiative, but also because this is a subject matter that is close to the hearts of what they are to, to themselves on a personal level and also what their company believes in. You know? Yeah, which is yeah, which is why we are very you know, we are also very humbled by the support uh, that a lot of these people give us. And yeah, for the rest of the interview, we talked about their favorite films from the festival, which had the most engagement, and their plans for the future, which includes projects like a regional documentary about happiness and even an international happiness conference. But by the end, however, I can't say for sure that I learned anything specific about happiness. I mean, sure, there was the part about happiness being a choice and the actions that you can take, but these seem to me like temporary solutions, you know? Something to help with your day-to-day emotional well-being. There, something else we learned. But with regards to my current predicament about meaning and purpose at work, or life evaluation, I don't really know. Being grateful and kind and content is nice, yet it doesn't do much to relieve that deep yearning that I was talking about at the beginning of the episode. 
However, as I go through the recordings and listen to Simon and Sherman again and again, I'm beginning to realize that the answer might have been there all along. It's not just in the technical stuff that they teach about happiness, but also in their story and in all the actions that took them to where they are today, be it volunteering on the weekends, spending their life savings on a master's abroad, or starting a social enterprise to spread the word about happiness and well-being and working themselves half to death on a film festival. And that's when it finally hit me. Happiness can be a choice, but only if you make it. Meaning or purpose or life evaluation is not just about smiles and sunshines and rainbows, and it definitely doesn't just fall into your lap. If anything, it involves a lot of hard work, patience, sacrifice, risk, and grit, just so that gradually, little by little, you may someday achieve something that is truly worth your while, something that you can be proud of, and something that actually gives you meaning. If you're stuck at a job that makes you unhappy and afraid to do anything about it, then that choice is already forfeit. But if you at least put in some honest effort into pursuing something that gives you purpose, then the option remains open. And yeah, there will be plenty of risk. There will be plenty of uncertainty. And you probably will fail time and time again. But you know what? Regardless of how daunting it may be to quit a job or how ludicrous it may seem to invest in your own passions and interests, at the end of the day, you can at least hold your chin up and say that you tried, that you believed in something and took action, and that in a life full of chasing grades and promotions and bonuses, you took the other path and started your own pursuit of happiness. And I think one of the things that I think I wanted to mention that, that because we looked through the surveys and one of the comments people make uh, a minority of them make this comment like, hey, but you know I feel that this this dialogue not very insightful like after I go out from the screening I don't feel happier <laughs> right so then we also were thinking that actually I don't think this festival is meant to be an immediate solution to happiness it's not like you go through this festival and then you immediately are happy I think what we wanted to achieve this festival to have that dialogue about what happiness actually is so that people will go back and have a more introspective experience and reflect in their own life why they are unhappy or whatnot, right? And the other thing, I, I think that a lot of people actually know these things already. Yeah, so like when we talk about work, we all know that if we spend more time at home, we spend less time at work, we check emails less often, we we get less stressed out over things that don't matter. Uh, we all know that all these things will make us happier. And I think these are things that deep inside, we all know, right? And, 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 but then, you know, we just get caught with, in this whole pace of life that we keep going on and we don't do anything to change it. End of the day, you know, if you ask us at this stage now, you, I realise that there isn't a, one solution to anyone's happiness. I think everyone goes through their own certain journeys and that's why you won't see us like having like oh, uh, uh, 
a six months course about how to find happiness. You know, we are always running like many different events that cover different facets of it. And everyone just goes through their own journey in these little things and, and, and find their own their own happiness through their own journey. Nah. And with that brings the end to today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in, and much thanks goes to Simon Liao and Sherman Ho of Happiness Initiative for their time with this interview. If you like what they do and want to give them some support, you can visit their website at happinessinitiative.sg, follow them on their Facebook or Instagram, or by attending one of their events. Music for this episode was brought to you by Blue Dot Sessions, and you can check out all the tracks, all the research materials used, and all the links for Happiness Initiative through the show notes. Once again, this has been your host Danny with the Economical Rice Podcast, where over here, we spend most of our free time editing and producing podcasts in the pursuit of happiness.